DiscerningHearts.com presents Pathway to Sacred Mysteries with Dr. David Fagerberg. Dr. Fagerberg is a professor of liturgical theology at the University of Notre Dame. He holds an MA from St. John's University, Collegeville, and an STM from Yale Divinity School, and a PhD from Yale University. His books include Theological Prima on Liturgical Asceticism, Consecrating the World, Liturgical Mysticism, and Liturgical Dogmatics. Pathway to Sacred Mysteries with Dr. David Fagerberg. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. It's interesting when you bring that example up, I couldn't help but think of, as a Catholic, I have a great, tender love for the Blessed Virgin Mary. I love her. I love it in my prayer, in my relationship with her. There's something, as a mother, when I was a younger girl, I related to her as the caring mother. As, as a mother, I relate to her as the one who guides me and consoles me and helps me to pick myself up when I fail as a mother and even as one who reaches out to others. Okay, so having said all that, in that emotion, that warmth, that tenderness for her is real, is palatable to me. But that's not Latria. It's something different. Now, sometimes with God the Father, there are sometimes in the course of a struggle or something, and I know he's allowed something. The Father allows all things. I don't get it. And that same type of emotion isn't present. But that doesn't mean that Latreia is less. It's actually still more than the tender love I may have for the Blessed Virgin. And that's different. And that goes to an even deeper place than the emotions, doesn't it? There has been published a little book called C.S. Lewis's Letters to Children. Children wrote him from all around the world, and he never didn't reply to a letter. And so this is a collection of letters he wrote to the kids. One of them is a reply not to the child, but to the mother. And he says to the mother, tell, I've forgotten the kid's name now, if he thinks he is loving Aslan more than Jesus, he's really not. Because God knows the imaginations of little boys. He made that after all. And he knows that at one time, lions will be more exciting than Jesus. But it's okay, because he'll grow into that. I suppose all of us have um, a saint to whom we give Dulia because there's a special connection of that saint. But what's the first thing the saint would tell us? Don't look at me. Look up. Look further away. In fact, this tradition that so clearly distinguishes uh, Latreia and Dulia says that Mary gets hyperdulia. She gets more dulia than anyone else, but she's still a creature and thereby gets dulia, and only God gets Latreia. But it's true, she's transparent. She's a, a masterpiece of grace. A quotation from the um, Catechism refers to Mary in that way, the masterpiece of grace. And John Paul II says, the church is called to walk the path that Mary has already trodden and to arrive at the place where she is. And where is she? Giving glory, Eucharist, liturgy, latria, to God, to the Son. So she would simply be transparent and lead us there. Yeah, I've always found it interesting that in Marian apparitions, 
for those who may not be Catholic that are listening to us, the church investigates thoroughly, and those that are approved are not to take the place of the great public revelation of the Gospels and what's been taught in the Scriptures. But it's it, they're worthy. They won't lead you astray. But what I find so compelling about those is that she's always asking that a church be built on a particular spot. And when you think, why is that? It's not to give honor to her, because what happens in a church, what happens in a Catholic church, in the center of it is the Eucharist. It is a liturgy that happens within that church. In any place you've ever gone to, there's an explosion of liturgy. There's an explosion of this need to latria. Yeah, it's nice. So these apparitions, yes, they're important, but it's the, the fruitfulness, if you've spoken before, what's the fruitfulness of all this? It's latria. And why would you want anything else? I don't know. I mean, what are, what are your thoughts? Am I, am I being too simplistic? No, and I was thinking of um, the four points that Paul VI made in his document, Marialis Cultus, on the cult of Mary. There's a relationship between Mary and the liturgy. She's the model of the spiritual attitude with which the church celebrates and lives the divine mysteries. And he names four. Mary is the attentive virgin. She's the virgin in prayer. She's the virgin mother and the virgin presenting offerings. What do we do in liturgy? This is what Paul VI goes through in this document. We seek to be attentive, to offer up prayer, to be the maternal church that gathers the world under the wings and heals its sufferings and presents offerings. Mary is a model of a spiritual attitude, which every Christian should have when he or she celebrates and lives the divine mysteries. So she's not a replacement of the mysteries. She's the model for how we live and express those mysteries. The thing that within those liturgies, we go back to word, the words matter, that in our worship there in that latria, the church, the mystical body, there's certain words that are used. You can feel when violence is done to the gift of those words. The ego yes. of whoever or even a group comes in and they do violence to that. And I'm not talking about reverence. I'm not talking about piety. I'm talking about something maybe even deeper at that. They, it's a cracking of bones to that structure that it's so beyond sad. And it, and it does damage, doesn't it? The words which are vehicles for spirit are revelatory in Scripture, but they're dogmatic in other forms. And dogmas are words, and you have to use the right words. If a uh, doctor is writing the prescription for you, he can't prescribe arsenic instead of aspirin. It matters which word he writes down on the pad. Mm -hmm. It matters what terms we use in our dogma. And that's why the church argues over these things. You have to have the wording just right. As Chesterton said, uh, the, the church is a lion tamer, and it's, she's running with tigers and lions and dragons, and everything has to be just right in order to keep the balance. One wrong slip of words 
Chesterton finishes it, and all the stained glass would be broken and all the Christmas trees destroyed. Yeah, that's what happened when we goofed up our understanding of the sacramentality of the church, broke windows and whitewashed the uh, art. Uh, you have to be very careful in how you prescribe it. Uh, we prefer to have a kind of loosey-goosey, why can't we just say, be healthy? Uh, why do we have to have doctors and med school and big medical manuals? Well, because it matters how strong a dose you prescribe. You have to uh, argue about this. And sometimes the arguments have to go on for 300 years before we pin down our correct definition of transubstantiation in order to make sense out of reality and symbol. Mm -hmm. Here was the Mary quote that I was searching for, and it, the catechism led me to another one. Jean Corbon, again in his book, Wellspring of Worship, writes, the Virgin Mary is the church as it dawns in a single person. Let's see, who knew that? Oh yeah, Second Vatican Council, Lumen Gentium. The document on the church, how should we end this with a chapter on Mary? Mary is the church as it dawns in a single person. So Benedict XVI says the church is not a manufactured item. We don't create the church. It's not our Jesus club. You like Jesus? I like Jesus. We should get together and talk about Jesus on Sunday morning. You can form chess clubs and drone flying clubs that way. This is my hobby. You have that hobby? We, no. The church is not our manufactured item. The liturgy is not our manufactured item. Rather, I'm back to Benedict's words, the church is rather the living seed of God that must be allowed to grow and ripen. And that's why the church needs the Marian mystery, and that's why the church herself is a Marian mystery. In the same book from which that our article comes, von Balthasar has one, and he says, even before the church was organized in Peter, it was embodied in Mary. Yeah, and that's a lovely relationship between priesthood and laity. This is the embodied mystical body. And yeah, we have an organized sacramental ordered form as well. The beauty of all of that is that the church, even in what on any given Sunday, those words that are given to us because they do have meaning. A word was given to Mary. In the beginning was the word and the word became flesh. Where did it become flesh within Mary? The power of those words. It is not a word that doesn't have movement to it in the, in, in the sense that it's amazing. It allows the presider, the one who is ministering that word to others, an unbelievable range to choose from. Mm -hmm. I mean, that it's not as though it's one set. I mean, there are several Eucharistic prayers. There are several different settings. There are, it has given vision. If people have ever looked in a sacramentary or even the auxiliary pieces to it, the church gives you a lot of room. And yet there still is this desire to go outside of that because they don't trust it or maybe because they don't know it. I'm going to add prayer of St. Francis in there at the end of the prayers of intercession. Or I like to believe they just don't know any better. They, they're searching for something, but they don't trust what in that body has chosen to give Latria. I see where you're going. 
it's as if, well, to take Homer's quote again, liturgy isn't an expression of how we see things. And I guess that's why one wants to add additional text, mm-hmm. because uh, this is important to me. And I also want to get this point across. But that's like an actor uh, changing the words of the play. To be or not to be? Well, maybe. Let me think that over. No, 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 no. You can't, you can't say that. Yeah. I don't care what you're thinking at this moment, Mr. Jones, actor on stage. The words are in your mouth. You are speaking in the stead of Hamlet, instead of Hamlet. It's not quite a, um in persona, Christy. It's an in persona Shakespeare at that point, yeah? Mm-hmm. And we get to the Eucharist, and it's a real in persona Christi, the words of Christ spoken uh, in by the lips of the priest. But we we don't change the play. We're there to let other people receive the play as it was written by the master playwright. And not only are there these many words available that you were describing in the Latin, right? But then in the Byzantine, right? And the Armenian, right? And the Coptic, right? And there are all of these other ways in which that's been expressed. The word is a seed which gets planted in the soil and it grows differently in this Russian soil than in this Italian soil, but it's the same seed and it's the same tree and it should have the same fruit. Tinkering with liturgy is tinkering with something that which you inherit. And scripture is more revelation, but to change the text of the Eucharistic prayer is similar, analogous to uh, changing the ending of the story of the prodigal son. I I thought it might be more effective if we put a new ending on it. It, That's not yours to play with. Neither the scripture that you read to play with, nor the liturgy. And that's what the rubrics say. No priest, no bishop makes changes like that. This belongs to the whole. But the uh, reason isn't because there's a power trip. And the reason isn't because uh, Rome has a power that we don't, we're not allowed here. And the reason isn't even that uh, it's tradition and we've always done it this way and it can never grow. Liturgy does grow. The reason is that we can't disturb the form, the formality, the grammar. And you have to be careful about the selection of words. And so the insertion is a long time in coming. Sometimes it feels like it happens fast when it occurs, but I think it actually has a history to it. Liturgical changes, in my opinion, are not like ripples and waves on the surface of the water. They should be more like movements of the tectonic plates under the ocean. It goes very slowly. So for some people, that is annoying because we want the church to get relevant because then the world will stop hating us. No, they won't. If we preach the gospel, the world's going to hate us. We're not trying to make the world relevant. We're not trying to make the church relevant to the world. We're trying to speak the truth. And that takes time to find those. On the other hand, Lewis said, the church knows the answer as soon as she hears the question. So the world comes up with a new question. Oh, yeah, we worried about that back in uh, 1500, back in 800. We've thought about this before. I don't think you can think up a new heresy. They've all been done. Try as you hard, might. You can't become famous for a new heresy. They've, they've all been treated. We'll return to Pathway to Sacred Mysteries with Dr. David Fackerberg 
in just a moment. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app in which you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Deacon James Keating, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more are found on the Discerning Hearts free app. Did you also know that you can stream Discerning Hearts programming on numerous streaming platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and so many more. And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has the YouTube page? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find Discerning Hearts. Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will, all that I have and call my own. You have given all to me. To you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and your grace. That is enough for me. Amen. Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez, and I want to ask you to support Discerning Hearts in a special way. We, Chris McGregor, the board, and I all know that not everyone listening can help financially. We know we have listeners from all parts of the world, and we have made a commitment since the beginning to make the truths shared through Discerning Hearts totally free. So while you may not be able to contribute financially, what you can do is certainly pray, but also give us positive reviews on whatever platform you use to listen to us. If it's iTunes, Android, Stitcher, Spotify, however it is that you get these podcasts, or if you're on YouTube and you like our videos, please give us a good rating and write a review. The more good ratings and reviews we get, the higher our profile, and the more listeners will discover us, listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. Please consider rating us and writing a positive review today. We now return to Pathway to Sacred Mysteries with Dr. David Fagerberg. Do you think that if you truly believe, if you truly understand everything that's happening in this mystical action in the liturgy, and that there is this river, it's one thing to turn on the tap in your kitchen, it's another thing to go to the source to experience the waterfall. Take a sip from the fire hydrant. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you really truly believe that that's what's happening in this sacred engagement, I can't help but think of that movie. And I know this isn't, they weren't Catholics in the movie, but it's such a beautiful image of Mrs. Miniver when the church has been bombed out in the countryside of England and the war has come to them and they're dealing with the reality of all, they all gather in the church with the church with a roof that's falling apart, and it doesn't matter anymore. They just need to get to that waterfall. I'm sure you know what I'm kind of talking about, but I'm so clumsy in trying to express it. No, it's an interesting Rorschach test. If our world was falling apart, where would we be tempted to go? The bank? Mm -hmm. The government building? Parliament? Who sets their eyes 
any higher. And it's pointed out that what's downtown in the Greek world, there were temples. What's downtown in the American world? I've read uh, architectural studies on that contrast. Or Kevin, I like to tell a story that Constantine befriends Christianity. And so he knows that he has to put a church at the center of the empire, but the city of Rome is already filled up with uh, pagan temples and with Roman buildings, uh, political buildings. And so he uh, moves the uh, capital to the center of the empire further east to, and, and modestly names it after himself, Constantinople, so that he can build the Hagia Sophia in the center of town. I note that the Hagia Sophia was conquered by Muslims in the 15th century and has just been returned to a status of a mosque. But this was putting cult at the center. Kevin, I would find cult as conceiving and enacting the values of a group. Conceiving and enacting the values of a group. There's a tribe still on the face of the earth that gets together every once in a while on the natal day of one of the members and sings an old tribal chant, happy birthday to you, and brings in a sweet confection of flaming torches on it and gives gifts. That's a birthday cult. It conceives and enacts. It tells stories and it does this ritual of presence and cake. The values of this group, the group is family. The values are belonging and love and membership. You can do the same thing with Thanksgiving Day, right? Uh, the values are patriotism, patriotism and football, I guess. They've been mingled. But you tell stories about the time the oven was on the blink and we had to have drive-in chicken instead of the turkey. And you uh, do the ritual of gathering at Grandma's house. Well, liturgy is a cult, a cultus, cultic liturgy. And the conceiving part is the liturgy of the word. And the ritual part is the liturgy of the Eucharist. And the group is the church, the ecclesia. And the values, oh dear, this would take forever to name. Let's just call them kingdom values. And then go through the New Testament and mark in red all the values that you find mentioned. And then the conclusion that Kavanaugh is driving at is that cult produces culture. So what cults do we practice is the question that leads to the, what is our culture? What's our culture in America today? The shopping mall? Avaricious? Me first, myself second? One more version of the iPad? At the center, what's being built at the center. So Mary appears and churches are built. Bombs fall and you go to the church. Struggles arise. Do you go to the therapist or do you go to the church? And I'm not taking a knock out of having your uh, ego properly aligned. I'm saying that ultimately it's a, a uh, spiritual and eternal question. And there's only one place to go for spiritual and eternal answers. The problem becomes, isn't it, that when we no longer, you had mentioned this in one of our previous conversations, that that line of full and active participation, that unless we are doing something or somehow we want them to be electors, ushers, 
greeters, the hospitality people after. And those are all beautiful things. I mean, that's a beautiful welcoming, all these things. But that's not necessarily what the church is asking for us. I mean, it's acting for full and active participation in Latria, isn't it? It's not the activity of the worship as much as the busyness of the workers there. It's more about what the soul is allowing Christ to do in them in that moment. Mm -hmm. There's a collection of essays that Virgil Michael put together. He's the more or less founder of the liturgical movement in America because he brought it from Europe back home to America. He's a monk of Collegeville, St. John's University in Collegeville, and was a student of Lambert Baudouin, who's generally credited as having kicked this off, unless you want to go back to Guéranger. Baudouin said into class, what went into class one day, and he exclaimed aloud, I now know what the established or the value, why the significance of the liturgy is. And he put this itching powder under Virgil Michael's coat as well. He writes, makes a collection of a few little essays. And when I read it just maybe five, six years ago, after being in this material all this while, I realized that it exposed a different viewpoint than the one I had received. Where had I received this viewpoint? I don't know. It's just in the water. You drink it in some way. Liturgical movement. What's the liturgical movement? Why, it seems like trying to move a football up and down the field. And when the conservatives have hold of the ball, they move it a little further this way, but then the liberals get hold of the ball and they move it a little further this way. Liturgical movement is moving the liturgy towards one uh, end zone or another, according to your desire. In this collection of essays, the three, three times the three different authors say, liturgical movement, what we mean by liturgical movement is moving closer to the liturgy. It's not moving the liturgy according to how we see things. It's moving us closer to the liturgy. And then the language is something like, we're sitting in the cold on the outskirts of the fire. And why are we shivering? Why is our spirituality so cold? Why is our Christian zeal so lacking and cold? The purpose of the liturgical movement is to move us closer to the liturgy, to have our Christian life take on this warmth. And where's the fire kindled? It's on the altar. So that was just a whole new version for me. People fuss and fume and argue about liturgical movement, but this uh, took it out of one scale and put it in another. I would have called myself on the liberal side of the liturgical movement because there seemed uh, something valuable to that. But I went to my first meeting of a, a society of Catholic liturgy, which looked to me more conservative on the right, and I was a little bit nervous about uh, being there. And I suppose it can be looked back on as kind of one of those uh, providential God-designed actions at the opening coffee hour after the first lecture, 
we were standing there and I was uncomfortable because I'm Norwegian and uncomfortable in a crowd anyway, but I was uncomfortable. Uh, who are these people? I don't really know any of them. And somebody actually came over to me and said, so are you liberal? What, did I look like it? Did my face uh, exude some kind of scowl? How, why would he say something like that? Maybe I have a big L on my forehead instead of loser, it said liberal. And I had the presence of mind to do something which is very rarely done and which I highly recommend. I said, what do you mean? People don't ask, what do you mean, when things like that are said. I wish we could have little thought bubbles above our head saying, this is my definition of conservative. And he said back to me, you know, liberal, like putting goldfish in the font for Ecology Sunday. Ah, he had seen this somewhere. That was his definition of liberal. None of my friends in the field who would call themselves liberal would think to do such a thing. And it made me think that the left and the right look like they're opposing themselves on this side of the planet, but maybe on the back side, the land masses actually touch. It's only on this side that there's this opposition. What could we agree upon? We might agree upon the fact that liturgy is not an expression of how we see things. It should be an expression of how God sees us. Well, how do you express that? Oh, I'd like to have both uh, left and right involved in this. I'd like somebody concerned about Mrs. Murphy's appreciation of more deeply performed symbols. I'd like to have somebody else concerned about having more than just a brick tent and uh, decorating it with the eschaton that Mrs. Murphy is uh, destined for. I'd like to have all the um, uh, people on the table. So I don't know how much longer the kind of uh, sniping between uh, left and right will go on. Part of my reason for moving into liturgical asceticism and mysticism and consecrating the world and spirituality is to thicken, to find what that thicker notion of liturgy involves uh, instead of arguing over rubrics. Now that was one train of thought you inspired. I had a second train of participation, full active. A rabbi from New York came to our department this past semester and he visited my orders and ministry course to make some observations about ministerial habits, both Jewish and Catholic. And he spoke about a common pattern. A new couple shows up at the door. The leadership welcomes them warmly and wants to get them involved. This is where the trip wire was that you had given for me. Well, to get involved, what does that mean? And the rabbi said, usually it means putting them on a committee. And we all chuckled at the truth we saw in the observation. And it got me thinking about trying to jump out of my world of experience and imagining what it might have been like in the Church of the Middle Ages. I know this is a rose-colored depiction. I'm just trying to make a point. One day, Father Joseph comes to Richard the swineherder and says, Richard, I know you are a sincere Christian. You come to Mass, often daily. After confession, you receive the Lord's body. You are contrite in your confession and accept the penance assigned in the sacrament and are diligent to complete it. You have vowed a pilgrimage to the shrine of Our Lady next year to give thanks for your mother's recovery. You contribute alms to the poor box and to the confraternity that purchases new sacred vessels for the Mass. You keep the fast during Lent and on Fridays. When you are able, you come to morning prayer, and otherwise you're faithful in praying the rosary with your children and bring them up in the habit of prayer. You've contributed mass stipends for your grandmother in purgatory. You pray the Angelus. There's just one more thing I wanted to ask of you. Would you volunteer to take the junior high students roller skating youth night on Saturday? 
I thought that punchline could be filled in with any number of others. Would you serve on the bereavement committee, the social action committee, the building committee? Would you be an usher? Would you be an extraordinary minister of communion? Would you help in the new counseling program for the unemployed? Would you come to catechism training, coordinate some scripture group? I don't mean to make light of the tasks necessary, but you see the point. They exist to serve the liturgy and to be fully actively and consciously involved in your Christianity participating in your Christianity doesn't just mean to uh, set up the folding chairs in the linoleum in the church basement. Let's see, what could we do to increase the zeal that Christians have for their faith? Well, let's have more meetings in the church. Now, maybe the right kind of meeting would stir zeal, but let's make sure we know what is a means and what is an end. Full active and conscious participation. By the way, there is a Greek word which can be translated as participation. But the Greek word also has another translation. And the Greek word is koinonia. Koinonia can mean participation in, but koinonia koinonia also means fellowship. Full, active, and conscious koinonia. That's what we're after full, active, and conscious participation in the Trinity. And that's my definition of liturgy, which I suppose we should get to at some point, but that takes a little line-up to, uh, uh, a lead-up to get to. We are wanting people to undergo a liturgical movement, to move from the cold closer to the fire of the liturgy, where they could more fully, more consciously, more actively, more zealously fellowship with God. The object isn't to just get them closer to the altar, but closer to Christ. And that's a, that's a, perhaps a different uh, approach to liturgical movement. Liturgical reform first depends upon liturgical form, grammar, latria. We'll continue our conversation with Dr. Fagerberg in our next episode. You've been listening to Pathway to Sacred Mysteries with Dr. David Fackerberg. To hear and or to download this conversation, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com, or you can find it within the free Discerning Hearts app. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission, And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation which is fully tax-deductible to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for Pathway to Sacred Mysteries with Dr. David Fackerberg.